Welcome to the TEH, the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast where several hosts talk about what they find interesting in tech this week. The show notes for this episode are at tehpodcast.com slash teh78. No, not 33 and a third. This week we'll have all four, reg- oh, no we're not, we have three of the regular hosts. I'm Randy Cassingham, founder of thisistrue.com, the oldest entertainment feature on the internet, and the Get Out of Hell Free Card, a fun online, offline, viral gimmick. You lose track of being able to count when you don't do this for a while. You should I know. Practice. First time I'm Leo Notenboom, the Leo behind AskLeo.com, and a lover, as I say each week, or pretty much every week, of coffee, corgis, and computers. And tonight, I'm brought to you by, uh, actually, creme de menthe and vodka, rather than my usual coffee vodka. Mm, that sounds good. Mm. I'm Gary Rosenzweig, the host and producer of MacMost.com, where I teach you how to get the most from your Mac, and I also make mobile apps and things like that. So, um, and speaking of Apple kind of things, I, uh, I completing my first week here using the Apple Card and spending lots of money. Well, trying, yeah, just trying to spend the normal <laughs> amount. Actually, and the thing is, I haven't actually even used the card itself yet. I, I just before recording, I actually received the card. So it was a week ago, six days ago, that I got access, and then I was able to set it up on my iPhone to use with Apple Pay and to use as a card online. You know, I had a number and everything. It's all taken care of in the wallet app on the iPhone. So it's a real plastic card. But now I ha- actually, it's not. It's metal. Oh, um, I got that's the just metal, like the Amazon card, card. Yeah, the Amazon yeah. card's metal too. So I, so I haven't used the actual physical card yet. I have used Apple Pay a bunch of times, and I changed a couple of my online purchase you know, cards to, uh, to it. So I noticed, like, uh, I think an Amazon charge went through that was using it, and I think my phone bill, my AT&T phone bill went through um, on the regular thing. So I've used it. It's, it's neat. It's neat using it. I'm, you know, it shows you you're getting 2% back when you use Apple Pay. And, and it's pretty cool how it you know, gives you a much more human readable screen, you know, showing like real names of businesses, not these weird codes that you have to kind of decipher, what was that purchase? And with a map and, and sometimes a company logo. And, um, and yeah, it's, uh, it's you know gone pretty well. I see I see the Apple Pay cash now that I have since you get your cash back in Apple Pay cash, and you get it the next morning. So I have a bunch of Apple Pay cash which I never had before. I don't know what I'm going to do with that because I it's weird, but I've never used Apple Pay cash. It's a great thing. I just none of the use cases like I'm not like I'm not I don't go out to dinner with a bunch of people and then oh you just send me twenty bucks or whatever. I just don't do that. It just doesn't come up. So. I know people use Apple Pay Cash a lot, but I don't know what I'm going to use my Apple so, Pay Cash for. Gary, can, can you clarify just what Apple Pay Cash is? I mean, I was yeah. under the impression that the, like on the Amazon card, right, the points you get, the, the percent back you get is just stuff that you can then apply to Amazon purchases in the future. Um, well, I that- think, I think, yeah, I, I mean, that's probably what I'm going to do. I mean, the idea of Apple Pay Cash is, you know, Apple Pay works by linking typically to your credit card you know, before the Apple card. So you link your American Express or Visa or MasterCard to it, and then you use Apple Pay on your phone, and it gives you all that security. It masks who you are, and you can, you know, use it in a situation where they have the checkout, they have it at checkout. And Apple Pay Cash is like you can actually put cash into your account, 
and use that cash instead. So I think what I'll probably end up doing is just at some point notice I have a bunch of money in there. And when I go to the store or something, I'll say, oh, instead of using this credit card, I'll just dip into that Apple Pay cash that I've got. And uh, so that's it's kind of like your cash back. Like uh, my, uh, my Visa card does this. I get you know my 1% with that. And I can transfer that into a cash account and take it out using an ATM. Or if I wanted to, when I go and pay my bill, I could say, oh, apply that $200 I have sitting in you know, points or cash or whatever right. it is right. to it. So you could, it's kind of the same thing, except I can actually use it live. Like I can actually buy a meal <laughs> or a product or something and then decide to use ca- the Apple Pay cash rather than yeah. My credit card. It is a little. It is a little bit more flexible than I, I keep coming back to the Amazon equivalent because that's that's probably about the closest I'm aware of right now. And yeah, you get you know points that are associated with your account, but you can only use them really on Amazon purchases. Right, and actually, so the weird thing is, Amazon purchases is one of the few things you could definitely not use Apple Pay for. You can uh, use your Apple Card because it's just it's basically it's a Mastercard. But so I can set that up, and I and I have, and I made a purchase, but. Um, that just goes across as a MasterCard charge with the 1% cash back. But unfortunately, go to Amazon.com and you go to pay. Apple Pay is not an option. And I guess it's because they've got the Amazon Pay system and it's a competitor. And, you know, we just have to wait for everybody to finish right. their little slap fight or whatever they're well, doing. Well, I'm not sure they're going to finish it. I mean, they don't take Google Pay either, right? Yeah. Which is another, essentially another competitor along the same lines. So I wouldn't really expect these companies to essentially accept each other's competing payment systems. Maybe. I mean, at least having the Apple Card now does give me the option to you know, have those charges together. I mean, I'm only the only disadvantage is I'm getting 1% back because right. it's just a standard charge. Now, the card, so the card I got today is interesting because it in itself is something very different. It is a metal card said on the front is my name, the Apple logo, and you could see the chip. On the back, it says a MasterCard and Goldman Sachs and nothing else. Goldman Sachs, huh? Yeah, that's the they're the backers. They're the issue. Bank. Yeah. yeah. So there is nothing else on the card. There's, There's no, no number. number, no pin, nothing. So the way it's supposed to work is if you go someplace, you give them your card and the chip in it, they should use that and it should be fine. I don't know what happens if the chip doesn't work because there are plenty of places I go to. Heck, today, the place I went to, even though they had one of those little like tablet screens that they spin around and all that, they still swiped my credit card. And I don't know what's going to happen. There is, it, I don't know if that's really a strip at the bottom or not. Um, it looks like it may be a magnetic strip at the bottom. So I don't know. I'm going to find that out live because I'll probably someplace that tries to swipe it and then we'll see what happens. But then if they want to run it through, like, oh, you know, our machine's down or something, the number you get on your phone. So in a case where they need to see a number, I'm supposed to whip out my phone, show them the screen in my wallet that says, here is the current number for this card. A one-time use number, of course. Um, no, it's, well, yes and no. It's a, it's a n- static number that stays the same, but there's a button that I can press to change it. <laughs> I think the idea being that if I set that up online, like to pay my phone bill or something, I can, you know, okay. it's not, you know, so I, the idea is at some point, if I feel that there's been something 
it's gone wrong or whatever, I could go and change it. And I just got to remember maybe to go and change it online. I know that might not be the case. I know with my American Express card, when the number changed, there were certain uh, places like Amazon say that they were able to, I, I didn't have to update anything. Like it, um, you didn't have to update, at all. you didn't have to update anything right away. My experience on that one is yeah. that um, they have a lot more time, like uh, as much as like twelve months. Okay, they will finally get around to saying, "Hey, your card's not valid anymore." Well, that's good because if I ch- if I change the number a few times, I don't mind at some point. Like my right. the, you know company, some company that bills me saying, "Oh, by the way, can you update this number?" As long as I don't have, you know, I don't have to do it. Every time I change the number, I say, okay, here's a list of 10 places. Right. Now I need to go. Um, so that'll be good. But I'm also curious, I mean, just using this card, if I'm going to run into any trouble, I've got kind of a list of little pl- places around where I live that I go that, you know, don't seem to use the pin, you know, the, the chip with the pin and, and they don't, um, they seem to swipe. Maybe they've got older equipment and stuff. So I'm really curious, like for instance, with no signature on it, I still have places I go to and they look at my card and they look at the signature and every once in a while they ask for my ID. And I'm sure it's something where there was an incident a month ago and now the manager says, ask for everybody's ID. So what's going to happen when I show them this card and there's no signature on the card itself? Right. Will they freak out? (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Yeah. So I want to see, you know, is that going to be the new version of we don't take American Express that I hear all the time is that uh, I don't know what to do with this card. It doesn't have your signature on it. Well, right. and and um, they're not required to get signatures on credit card purchases anymore anyway. Right. That was last year. That was a change. But yeah. a, a lot, lot of people of places, don't know that. <laughs> well, a yeah. lot of places are still playing catch up. And this actually leads into um, what we were talking about very briefly before we started recording. Um, and that is that today I went to the grocery store and uh, I've got, just gotten so used to using Google Pay, right? The RFID, wave your phone at the terminal thing, and, and magic happens. And in this case, magic didn't happen, and that's when I noticed the little sign that said, nope, we don't do Apple Pay, um, which essentially means that the machine itself didn't have an RFID, you know, an RF reader, RFID reader. Um, but uh, I think that, that that same kind of, of thing where... It requires them to um, update their physical technology before they can do that. And they're just rolling that out very, very slowly. I'm seeing that with signatures as well. I believe that a lot of the technology that's installed in many of these point-of-sale places, um, just it's old stuff that they haven't updated yet. It's an actual either potentially worst case, it's a machine update uh, so that they can do things like Apple Pay and Google Pay uh, or even you know read chips. Uh, but at a minimum, there's some software update that they just haven't gotten around to yet that says, hey, you know, it's, it's okay um, to, uh, to not require a signature. Yeah. I, it's funny, you know, I'm setting up this website for, so I can sell my courses directly instead of through Unimi in the future. And, and I was able to set up Apple Pay for that site in about 30 seconds. Yeah, so, right. But there's no hardware investment that you yeah, have to put in that's or true. But, That's what's what a lot of these big companies are dealing with. Like the place I went to, the grocery store I went to, it's a subsidiary of Kroger, which is pretty darn big. Oh yeah, it's huge. It's one of their smaller stores. It's off, you know, it's, it's probably one of their less popular ones. Um, and they just have not updated the physical technology that's required at the point of sale. Well, Kroger is even worse. If I, if I remember correctly, they have some stores that don't take Visa. 
Uh, yeah, that's right. A, a fight with Visa over the discount rates. Um, Interesting, because I actually ended up paying with Visa, my my Amazon Visa, as a matter of fact, because it it just it was a chip reader, so it took the chip. Yeah, it's it, it, like as Randy said, it's some sort of fight, but you know, it, it's kind of a scary thing because um, you know Visa has always been my like. Well, as long as I have a Visa card with me, I'll be able to pay with it, you know, no matter what else. But right. now it's like, no, there's actually some stores. I mean, not unusual things like Kroger grocery stores somewhere in the country that uh, wouldn't take them. So in a sense, we're regressing, right? We have to have, not only do we have to have some physical cards with us Uh because they might not take Apple pay or Google pay. uh, We also now have to carry all three (laughs) MasterCard visa and American express just in case all, you know, two out of three aren't taken. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's uh yeah, it's weird. Hopefully it gets, I mean, hopefully we are headed towards a future where we can use our phones or watches and things like that to pay. Because the great thing is, is that those can use multiple cards. So like yep. as long as a place does take Apple Pay, then I have a Visa, a MasterCard, and American Express, and a, a way to have cash too through Apple Pay Cash. And I'm sure, you know, Google's got the same thing. So, you know, there's all these options open to you. Heck, you could use, uh, you know, PayPal, Exactly. I was just, I was going to jump in on that because I ended up finally, you know, um, giving into PayPal's constant nagging. Hey, you've been pre-approved for a card. You've been pre-approved for a card. Um, I got a card specifically because uh, one of the places I do business with uh, only takes uh, uh, MasterCard or Visa, doesn't take American Express. And of course, my business account was American Express. So I got the business PayPal. And yeah, it just hooks right up into, into Google Pay very, very easily. So if I ever have an opportunity to use it that way, I can. It's great. Cool. Brave new world. No kidding. Yeah, it's just <laughs> getting more and more complex. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Randy, anything new and exciting with you? We're, you weren't here last week, so or the week before. Neither of us were. Anything going on? Well, all I have is, is the bad news I gave you, Leo, is that <laughs> our favorite espresso vodka, Sobieski, absolutely delicious has apparently been discontinued. And if any listeners between, say, Western Colorado and Boise have some, I'd be very happy to stop and pick it up and pay you for it Um, because I'm going up to Boise in September. So um, just I got the last two bottles at my local liquor store who was carrying it because I asked them to. And... uh, I Good said, get me a case of this because, you know, I just throw a case in the cupboard and, and you know, it takes me a year or two to go through them all. But um, Unless somebody stops by and, and but, but they call me <laughs> I'm sorry, you can't get any more. Bummer. Um, bummer. So, they, so they, they put the last bottle that was on the shelf aside for me, which is very kind of them. Um, and that's all I have now. I have a, an open bottle and a, and a full bottle and that's it. Maybe forever. You know, it is it is interesting how these specialty products they continue to to make an impression on on all of us. Like even in this globalized world, you know, where the, like the same restaurants are in downtown Denver as in downtown Chicago and downtown New York and downtown LA, it's the same chains and the same stores and all that. But there's these weird specialized products like like that vodka and like my wife loves this coffee. That is only made by this one coffee company in Ocean City, New Jersey, and mm. she has to buy a ton of it uh, when she's there, and uh, and then she orders some usually through mail the rest of the year. I mean, it, it, I hear more and more about what you're talking about, Randy, about these. Well, I can understand, products. you know, 
a particular store having a specialty thing that they only make. I yeah. Mean, and, you know, if they don't mail order it, then yeah, you got to pick up a bunch when you're there. But this was like a national brand. I mean, it's actually made in Poland, so it's a big brand. International brand, yeah. And I, I kind of understand that there are these fads that go through the alcohol industry, especially in the vodka space, because, you know, there's like 80 billion flavors when you multiply the number of flavors by the number of distillers out there. And, you know, they can't keep all of them up all the time. But, you know, who doesn't like coffee these days? And it just really surprised me that they, they discontinued it. You know, it could be, it could be marketing. <laughs> Hear me out. So Trader Joe's, you guys have Trader Joe's. There's Trader Joe's up in Seattle, right, Leo? Yes. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And there there wasn't Trader Joe's until several years ago here in Colorado, but my wife still loved it from traveling and living in California for a while. And there's certain products that are Trader Joe's products that you only get from them because it's their brand. Several different ones that she loved over the years. And they recently got rid of all of the things that she loved, like the, the uh, quiches that she eats, the pancake mix, some other stuff. They just got rid of them. And she's like, are they out of them? No, time and time again, they're not there. She looked it up online. They discontinued those products. One of those, after decades of carrying that certain type of Trader Joe's thing. And then in doing the research, she found out that what they like to do apparently sometimes is discontinue a beloved product so that several years from now, they could bring it back and make a big deal out of it. Maybe that's what's going on with your coffee vodka. Maybe. Maybe we'll have to see. It's interesting though, because I've, you know, obviously being a coffee vodka connoisseur myself, um, I have gone through this with our local, a uh, couple of local retail stores, and I come across something that I like, I get a couple bottles and it disappears. I come across something I like, I get a couple bottles and it disappears. And by disappear, I mean, not only is it no longer on the shelf, no, when I go to ask for more, they say, no, we can't get that here. No, it's been discontinued. So, Leo, your lesson is. If you find something you like, get Keep a case. quiet. <laughs> get, get a get case it. and don't get a couple of bottles so it'll last you longer. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so, yeah, it's it's interesting. I hope that it's marketing. Um, it'd be great for – Sobieski yeah. coffee vodka was never available out here. Their normal stuff was, but the coffee vodka never made it out here. So I think it's even more complicated than just simple marketing. I think there's it's random distribution stuff yeah. going on at the same time. Could be. It could be the opportunity also for a co- competing vodka maker to – to jump in, you know, well, and, and there are other right espresso cures and, and vodkas and stuff, but this was particularly good. It was only like 15 bucks a bottle. Um, and the Sobieski vodka is actually quite good. It's very smooth and not real expensive. I mean, most of the um, vodkas that take off, you know, the price starts going up. Um, but so far, so good on, on this particular brand. So well, this one's price went to zero. Yeah, exactly. So one of the things that that struck me as we were introing today's um, episode, episode 78, not 33 and a third, for the youngsters among us, what we're referring to are (laughs) rotational speed of long playing or playing records, vinyl. Remember that vinyl stuff that you put on a spindle and have it turn at a certain speed? And in this case, actually singles as opposed to long play. That's true, yeah. 78s were always singles. Um, so I, a couple of, of random questions for you. One is my theory is that everything else being equal, 78 RPM should be higher fidelity. 
than 33 and a third, uh, just because it's got higher bandwidth, more opportunity, you know, there's more data to be played. Sort of. I realized that there was also an evolution of technology as at the same time as these rotational speeds changed so that the equipment that was originally designed to handle 78 RPM was probably not as high a fidelity as the 33 and a third, but I just thought that was interesting. Here's a question for you both though. Mm -hmm. Why, why do contemporary modern record players still use needles? Instead of As lasers? lasers? Instead of lasers. It would, lasers? it would seem like bouncing a laser off the groove uh, yeah. should get you exactly the same information without doing any physical damage. I remember in the 90s hearing and reading about the idea of replacing needles with lasers and that they had this technology and that if it came to market, it would make vinyl actually higher quality than CDs because then you'd be doing... You know, you'd be doing analog music, but a really high quality level, and you right. wouldn't be wearing down the records. I remember hearing about that, being excited about that, because at the time I owned quite a few vinyl records, but nothing ever came from it. Maybe costs, maybe, maybe the, the current state of vinyl is to, it, you know, it's, it's just to bring back that feeling of that age and doing it something like something like technology where there's a, a laser is maybe... I don't know. Goes against that. I don't know. And I, I'm sure it has to do with cost, um, especially since vinyl kind of went out of style, if you will. Um, well, and really, well, a CD is is a type of laser phonograph. Well, of course, of course. But but literally, I'm talking about having a laser record player that can read any old LP. Yeah. Right. I think that the problem with the technology isn't necessarily the laser itself, but being able to hold that la laser steady over the track because vinyl records were trying to be precise. The groove. Yeah, because the groove is, first of all, it's a spiral, right? Mm -hmm. So, And I don't know how precise of a spiral it is because it didn't have to be because the needle was literally in that groove. Right. And it didn't matter if it the groove increased or decreased. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure there are some records I remember looking at where you could see the the uh, distance between the groove, you know, change over the course of the record. Yeah, so, between between tracks, they would have a little gap. Yeah, so... You dropped a needle in there. So I'm thinking that it, it would be, okay, here's a laser, but also we need all this stuff to keep the laser perfectly in the groove while the record's moving at this speed. So... So given what we do with lasers today, I mean, let's face it. Yeah. We use lasers in real time to do eye surgery. <laughs> How is that any less precise than tracking the silly groove in a certain, you know, in, in some... Um, well, it's not, but it's, you know, you don't want to pay, have like a $50,000 medical grade you know, piece of equipment. Right. To and, and if we'd been having this discussion 20 years ago, I would absolutely agree yeah. with you. But just the advances in the technology since then, I have to believe that the combination of being able to um, uh, move the, uh, the arm at a much yeah. higher precision and then using optical positioning to, uh, to get the laser pointing in the right place, it's gotta, it's gotta be possible. My understanding is that for, you know, antique type of you know, one of a kind like um, Edison wax discs or cylinders, mm -hmm. they do use lasers to 
pull the information off so they don't do any damage by playing it. Um, and of course, they're immediately digitizing it so that they don't even have to do that again. Right, right, right. Yeah, that but makes I'm, I'm guessing that those are really expensive machines that they don't want to, you know, it's not really a consumer item. For some reason, that brings to mind the old Chris Perello video of him uh, um, on what was that show he was on on on. Uh, oh, oh, I forget what it was called anymore. Um, but some guy had this very precious um, Edison uh, cylinder and uh, kind of went, oops, and crushed it. Help desk? Help desk. Yeah, I think that's what it was. Um, that goes way, way, way back. Uh, probably a good 20 years by now. Well, 15 years by now. Uh, that was just, that was a a moment that, that I'll remember for a long time. <laughs> hmm. I, you know, I wonder why, you know, thinking of, okay, so if you had a machine like that, that could use a laser to read the groove in a, a record, you could digitize that, right? Now, you wouldn't want to digitize it at the level of a CD, you know, of, a, of an audio CD. The whole idea would be to have higher quality. Sure. So you would digitize it at an extreme, like like two levels of magnitude more, like a hundred right. times more precise to get everything, every little scratch, every little, you know, imperfection of reading the uh, the vinyl. And if you did that, you wouldn't have to do it again, of course. You'd have right. the digital file. So if that was the case, you know, I'm thinking, you don't, you know, why doesn't somebody come out with like a digital format instead of, you know, uh, you know, OGG or FLAC or whatever. That's this is incredibly high resolution format that's meant for simply getting data directly from vinyl to to extremely high resolution digital, and then anybody could play it. Right. Yeah. What you're looking for is a not a vinyl player, but a vinyl ripper. Yeah, vinyl, a high precision, you know, the type of stuff like I imagine when they try to archive movies now and they have the 35 millimeter film and they're scanning those frames at such a high resolution, you know, to get way beyond the actual resolution of the film itself for the future, you know, archival stuff. Anyway, it's interesting. And I got back up just a little bit. It was called Call for Help. Oh, there we go. Leo Laporte actually started it in 98 and Chris Perillo was on 2001 to 2003. Right. I'll have to look up. I'll see if I can't find the the specific video I'm talking about just because it's one of those gut-wrenching moments for everybody involved. Yeah. I remember that. That would go, if that happened on a show today, it would go viral, but yes, yes. (laughs) it happened pre-YouTube. So, Um, yeah. Yeah. Hey, uh, one uh, other little uh, thing I did this week that um, before we go to the next story, Mm -hmm. we've since one of the technologies we regularly track here is, uh, fake meat. <laughs> I <laughs> I had a uh, Impossible Whopper. Oh, you oh. did the Burger King version. It was my first trip to Burger King in more than five years since I stopped eating meat, and I couldn't believe it when I saw the commercial because I thought it was going to take longer to roll out. Right. And but sure enough, it commercial, and sure enough, the Burger King near my house had a sign that said it. So went there and. Um, got a Whopper. I don't even know if I ever ate Whoppers. I usually just used to eat just the plain Burger King hamburgers. Right. I used to get like, well, when I was young, I used to get like three of them. They're really, if you remember, the hamburgers are small. Right. Really. They're for like little kids, right? But cost effective. Right. Yeah. So I used to get, yeah, I think they were like, sometimes they're 99 cents. So I used to get three of them, you know, and so I don't, I don't think I ever really went with the Whoppers um, or anything like that. So, so I got a Whopper and 
uh, had it. And of course, having had Impossible Burgers before in the past, I immediately recognized the flavor of it. So it's not a dumbed down Impossible Burger for Burger King. It tastes just like the ones I would get at the much more expensive restaurants uh, at a tiny fraction of the price. And I got to say, it worked really well. Like, you know, they put that kind of cheap little bit of mayo, a little bit of onion, a little bit of ketchup on top of it. You know, the fast food style bun. You know, Impossible Burger works really well with that. And I I was just so happy with that meal. Um, I thought it was delicious. I thought, so you're a, uh, a Burger King convert now, is I that guess, it? yeah, for five-year absence. Because Burger King was my – out of all the fast food restaurants that served burgers, Burger King was like the one I, I liked how they made their burgers. I liked how they made their fries. And so I would go there. I wouldn't go to the McDonald's or Wendy's or anything like that. So, Randy, what you missed last week, of course, was that I did, in fact, get my first Impossible Burger out here at uh, at my favorite burger place, <clears throat> and uh, it was actually quite good. Uh, I I don't it's it's close enough that I don't know if side by side I would recognize it as not meat. Uh, it was quite tasty. But my question last week, and it's the question I have for you today, Gary, is that okay? Great, you order you know the burger from McDonald's, from uh, Burger King. Mm. Did you have fries? You know those kinds of things. Yeah, aren't I mean, the the concern I have for for the vegetarians among us yes. that there are different degrees of vegetarianism, yeah. and one of them is was even animal fat used in the processing of this. Um, if you ordered the fries, for example, from Burger King, chances are it was probably in lard or or some kind of animal. No, I think they no. do vegetable oil, no, they... like uh, McDonald's. Really? Yeah. So yeah. I actually know a lot about that because I grew up kosher. <laughs> Oh, even better. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, when, I remember when I was very young, we went, probably the reason I enjoyed Burger King more than any of the others is because I believe Burger King was the first to switch over to using vegetable, you know, oil or whatever it is they cook their fries in ahead of McDonald's. So we didn't go to McDonald's because the fries would have been cooked in animal lard, which would have been pork. Right. And so. No, it was we, tallow. It was beef. It was beef. Well, yeah. We, we did go to McDonald's until they switched to vegetable stuff. And so we went to Burger King first. So Burger King, I know for now for decades, has done their fries the right way. And you could tell, so I went, uh, so years after all the fast food restaurants switched away from the animals, fat cooking of fries, I went to Europe and actually had, um, a, went to McDonald's once there and got fries. And immediately when I tasted those fries, I was like, what the heck? These taste really weird, and everybody taste and we realized, oh, they're still cooking in animal fat here. They're fries, and it, that was the case. I looked it up. So anyway, so yeah, no, I had a true vegetarian meal. I be, I'm pretty sure they cook the Impossible Whoppers in such a way that it's uh, you know for vegetarians. Matter of fact, I looked into it, and before the Impossible Whopper, they actually had a vegetarian Garden Burger. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. uh, so all those years I stopped going to Burger King, I probably would not, it would not have attracted me to go back just because the generic garden burgers, they're usually not that good, but, um, but they at least had that experience of making vegetarian meals there. So did they have like a separate grill? So there was no cross contamination. I don't know. Couldn't see back there. Didn't care to pay too close attention. Of course, for me, the main thing being a vegetarian is the environmental sustainability. Sure. 
and health, but I'm not getting the health benefit. I don't think eating a, a, an impossible whopper. <laughs> I th- I'm pretty sure that that's, that's kind of, I mean, maybe a little bit, right? You other know? bad stuff in there to compensate. I, I think there's, to make the impossible burgers taste pretty good. I don't think, you know, it's, it's a super healthy choice. Like I don't think it's bad. They, just, they have a um, GMO created heme. That, yeah. Um, yeah. That and I think it's, you know, red and tasty and iron rich. <laughs> Have yeah. you had one? Have you had tried one yet, Randy? I have. Um, actually, when we had a meeting of all the four of us, I can't remember what city we were in. Oh yeah, that was um, Kevin got one, and right? He let anybody take a little bite out of it if he, if we wanted, and it was very tasty. I think it was Salt Lake. Interesting. Okay. Oh yeah, maybe. Cool. Yeah. So so anyway, just wanted to report that. So now I can add Burger King back into places I can go to eat, which. Is great because sometimes I see a cluster of fast food restaurants while driving or doing something, and then usually I'm like, ah, I'm not going to really get anything I want there. But now, if there's a Burger King in that cluster, I can do it. Plus, it's a cheap meal. <laughs> um, and you have. don't do fish either, right? I, I actually I do do fish, so yeah. I, well, you can get a fillet of fish sandwich. I uh, yeah, except um, I try to stay away from. Uh, uh, like fried fish because that's like some of the worst for you. Um, so I save fry, my fried fish allotment for like go, going to places that actually serve like fish and chips, really good fish and chips. Or the, Yeah. Really good quality stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's a British like fish and chips place I'll go to or when I'm traveling. Yeah. Um, I'll eat that. But usually fried fish I try to stay away from because I know that's like ugh, really not, not, not particularly, you're not getting any health benefits eating, eating that. Um, but anyway, so there we go. Yet another place uh, that has uh, has impossible meat or beyond meat or something. Very cool. Cool. Right. So now we go to speaking uh, of alternatives. Hardware. Yeah. So Leo, um, Bill Nye, the shill guy, <laughs> which is in a way it's kind of sad, and in a way it's kind of funny. I mean, you know that Bill Nye started his career up here in Seattle, right? He was oh really? Okay. Yes, he was on a comedy show called Almost Live, which ran, it was a half hour local comedy show, poked fun at all the local, I'm sure every city has its, its local huh. places to, to poke fun at and so forth. Yeah. Um, if, you ever, if you ever want to, to take a look at Bill Nye when he was much, 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 much younger, uh, just Google or search for Bill Nye and Almost Live on YouTube. And there's plenty of, plenty of clips of him doing random science experiments on this comedy show. It was pretty cool. Hilarious. Anyway, yeah. So what's, what Randy's referring to is that Bill Nye has uh, starred in a commercial for the Google Chromebook where he basically pokes fun at Windows as being old and decrepit and falling apart. Um, that what's interesting about it to me is that there are a couple statements in there that I kind of, sort of, I don't want to say take issue with, but at least understand at a different level than perhaps the target audience. For example, one of the statements there is that um, the uh, uh, Google Chromebooks come with anti-malware or anti-security software pre-installed, which I kind of, sort of, consider a red herring. I was actually writing an article, a draft of an article about that this afternoon. The fact is, especially with Windows 10, uh, and it might have even goes back to Windows 7, but Windows 10 for sure makes it legitimate. Um, Windows 10 comes with anti-malware software. It, uh, Windows Defender is baked in, and it has uh, actually become quite respectable in the past couple of years. The other comment, of course, he made is that um, 
um, Windows updates uh, are destabilizing. Right? He doesn't talk about Windows updates specifically, but he talks about destabilizing updates and, and um, you know what, what I've often referred to as the Russian roulette of Microsoft updates and what it means to actually be willing to take an update, uh, which is hard to argue against. Uh, but I think the statement is made that you know uh, Chromebooks don't get updates. What they don't get is is destabilizing updates. They get updates all the time. One of the things I think a lot of people don't realize is that uh, both uh, Chromebooks and Linux, uh, my gosh, there's almost not a day that goes by where there's not some kind of an update to an app or to the operating system itself. But because they are not destabilizing, because they allow you to push off, or they, they don't force a reboot on you, they're not nearly as impactful as Windows updates so often seem to be. Um, the one that... Um, that <laughs> That that there are two things that came across the uh, the the threshold uh, over the past couple of days. One is an article on ZDNet. Uh, Windows or Chromebook? A Best Buy salesman told me it isn't even close, and this was absolutely fascinating. I hope it's true. I really do. But essentially, the article author, uh, like I said, it's a ZDNet.com article. The article author went to an office supply store. And they had Chromebooks on the display, and they had Windows uh, uh, laptops on display. And he was asking the salesman, you know, okay, which do I want? Which one? Which one are people, you know, buying? What's what's the deal here? And the bottom line is that nobody's buying Chromebooks, except people for that, kids. He said, yeah, except for kids. Yeah, it was pretty. That was you know, even then. I'll disagree with that in, in just a second. But um, the the. You know, the, the fact was, at least from his perspective, is that people who are interested in actually getting work done, which to me means using the applications that are available on Windows, they get Windows machines. And in fact, they get uh, Microsoft Surface, Microsoft Surface. Yeah, Microsoft and that right the now. reliability is nowhere near as bad as the ads were saying. Exactly, which has been my position for a long, long time. And we've talked a lot about how headlines tend to overblow um, you know, over, overstate the the issues that that uh, people are experiencing. And on one hand, you know, people that experience a problem, yeah, they make noise. People that don't experience a problem don't make noise. So when all you hear are the people making noise, then you're going to think that everybody's experiencing a problem, and that's simply not the case. Uh, I have, for example, I have. Gosh, I think I've got like five or six different Windows 10 installations. Um, and, and mine are not trivial installations, right? I mean, I, I'm, right. I'm definitely a power user by all means. I've yet to run into a problem with Windows Update. I mean, it just, just works. But um, so it was interesting to read that article and to get some what I would call real-world feedback. I, I wouldn't necessarily take it as gospel across the, across the industry, but it was good to get the other perspective. Randy, you're the one that actually pointed out that or reminded me of that article. Did you have a, any? Yeah, uh, I came across, across that uh, to yesterday or today, and I read it just because, you know, I kind of like Bill Nye, but like this is a real sellout as far as I'm concerned. Um, his full-length video, we'll link to it in the show notes, um, like two and a half minutes of ranting about how Chromebook is better. It has 6.4 million views just in that one YouTube posting, right. which is mind-boggling. It shows how much people like him and want to see what he has to say. But it, it, it seems so cheesy to me and so, you know, coming up with, 
BS excuses as to why Chromebook would be better. Sorry, Google, it ain't. Yeah, it's interesting. The, the, the position that I take on Chromebook is that, um, I mean, there are definitely aspects of it that are, I'll just go ahead and say better, but they are for a better for a very limited audience, right? If, if you are someone that spends um, all of your time at your computer, either online, surfing the web, or just doing email, which to be fair, is probably not a small percentage. It's, it's a significant number of people. Chromebooks are great. They really are. Um, in a sense, they do just work. But uh, so many people do more than that. And what I'm concerned about, of course, is that people may get, get um, I don't want to say sucked in, but, but they may get convinced to give a Chromebook a try and suddenly find out that, oh, yeah, that thing I do once a month for my ex organization that requires I use this special tool or whatever, I can't do that on a Chromebook. Um, you know, there, there's just so many different, um, uh, different concerns I have for people that may, may be convinced that a Chromebook will do everything they need, but they're not actual, that's not actually true. And as you said, it's, you know, Windows isn't as unstable as the headlines would lead you to believe. Um, the, um, the other one that just cracked me up. Um, yeah. <laughs> me too. <laughs> Microsoft fine found a gentleman. Uh, if you, if you've seen the ad, he has a foreign accent, so it's clearly not, yeah. you know, he's not I a think Australian, but I'm not sure. Um, yeah. His name is Mac book. So they hired him to, uh, basically they're doing uh, a feature comparison side by side of, uh, I think it's a Microsoft Surface Pro and a MacBook. And they then, the the whole reason for hiring this guy is so that they can say MacBook recommends a Microsoft Surface Pro. Which is Um, also really cheesy. Yep. Um, and the guy is, you know, he's a good looking guy, but he can't speak with a damn as far Not as being as articulate as I appreciated. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. But um, I, you know, it's like, that's a real stretch, you know, come on, Microsoft, you can do better than that. It's, it's marketing, right? I mean, yeah. that's, that's all it really boils down to. And it's, it's kind of like the old marketing. I'm sorry. It's crappy marketing. <sighs> if it works, is it crappy? I don't think it's going to work. That's my point. Well, it's, it's certainly getting people to talk about it. Well, can you imagine an Apple fanboy looking at that and saying, oh, I think I'll switch to a Microsoft Surface. Ain't <laughs> going to happen. No, but that's, that's, they're, they're not, that's not the audience they're targeting, right? They're targeting the people who are undecided. undecided yeah, I know. Wondering whether or not they should or they shouldn't. And, you know, simple things like, well, the Surface Pro, you know, how's the touchscreen? Well, the touchscreen on the Surface Pro is fine. The touchscreen on the MacBook is, well, non-existent. You know, those kinds of things that they get the opportunity to throw in there, um, I think are, the, are, in fact, the kinds of things that could potentially uh, sway an undecided purchaser. Um, so, I don't know. But, yeah, I just I thought the approach was hilarious. Uh, whether or not it'll work, well, who knows. The, I think the, the proof, if anything, will be in the longevity of that particular ad campaign. Um, if it's working, we'll be sick and tired of it uh, after a couple of months. Uh, or they'll do variations of it, right? They'll do more. Yeah, I, I, I just predict it's not going to work. And yep, Mr. Book is going to be out of a job soon. <laughs> you, you may very well be right. Honestly, I still kind of like the old Mac versus PC commercials with, uh, uh, I forget the two actors' names, right. now, Justin Long and 
those were cute and those were those were oh, clever those were clever exactly and they yeah. lasted for a long time and they did but, different variations mr mac macintosh or whatever his name was mckinsey that's what it was book it's not clever yeah well it was a stretch um and you said oh six point six point four million views for for bill nye's commercial yeah. i sus i suspect that uh macbook probably won't get that kind of coverage i agree yeah, I mean, they're taking a page out of Samsung's advertising where the idea with Samsung with their phones is they, they pick one feature that their phone has that the iPhone doesn't. Right. And they make a commercial about it. Because anytime you, you could do that with anything, any two products that have various features, there's going to be different features. So you just you ignore the fact that you're missing 100 features the other one has. You pick one that you've got that they don't. And you do a commercial on that. And then you do a commercial on another little feature that you've got. Or, you know, and basically, you're trying to build up in people's minds that, you know, oh, these, the Samsung phones have things that the Lots iPhones don't. Lots of features don't. that the iPhones don't, yeah. Exactly. And, um, you know, they... <laughs> There's an yeah. irony, though, here that I just love. Um, Samsung advertised for quite some time uh, the presence of their headphone jack. Yeah, and now after, it's gone. After yeah. Apple removed it. And now with the, the S10, it's gone. Of course, everybody knew that was coming. Yeah. And also the notch, for a while, Samsung made fun of the notch in right. the iPhone, right? Because Apple was the first to do that. And then, of course, Samsung phones started to have notches in them. So, uh, you know, who's, but, and I think that was the purpose. I don't think they're going, my prediction would be we're not going to see this MacBook guy again. The series isn't, that the series is pick a feature that the surface has that a macbook doesn't mm -hmm. mention it and go to the, on to the next feature and you know whether or not touch a touch screen is useful to somebody or not it is a feature that the surface has that the macbook doesn't so right. you mention it and you know <laughs> you're siri in the background <laughs> siri yeah siri was trying to chime in on that she's really upset about it I guess. she is but it's okay siri i'm on your side so and for some reason it suddenly reminds me why is there no mr sam sung <laughs> well, well what there is will be microsoft will probably come up with an ad except they don't do mobile phones anymore right right yeah anyway it was an, it was an interesting ad campaign and you know lots of things to uh, to poke fun at Yep. So I want to bring up something very different. Um, all of us have servers that we rent and host our sites on. Probably a lot of our listeners have websites on servers that, you know, in the cloud or sharing a server with somebody else. Um, and one thing that I don't see discussed very much is that servers are under constant attack from other servers with malware probing for weaknesses and hoping to you know break into our servers and exploit them and probably use them to attack other servers um, i actually have my security software set to let me know when it locks out these mm -hmm. other people other you know it's not people it's it's hardware that's that's um, been compromised and I've been noticing patterns, and the biggest pattern is China is number one by far, and I am quite convinced it is uh, state-sanctioned that that 
the Chinese government is actually encouraging people to try to crack servers. Uh, number two is Russia. And with all the campaign influence that they've been doing and, and trying to disrupt our elections, figures right in. Um, you know, partly I am a, a pseudo media agency um, because I talk about news with my, uh, my newsletter. I don't know if I'm particularly targeted or not, but I wondered if you guys have been noticing the same thing and what, if anything, you're doing about it. Well, you know, it's funny you should bring this up because just today I was configuring a WordPress site and I was trying to bring plugins over that I use on my other WordPress sites. And one of those is to lock out uh, logins, right? You know, when mm -hmm. somebody tries to log in and, and I was like, well, is this actually even doing anything? And I looked at the logs and there were, you know, there was enough in there for me to go and say, yeah, I need to put this on my new site. And it's exactly what you're describing. I mean, it's, it's, you know, people going in and I could see what username they're using. So it's not me typing the wrong password. Uh, right. It is like people trying with admin and, you know, the name of the site and a few other things that, you know, they think could be, this could be the admin password for the site. They're way off. And after 10 attempts, <laughs> right. they get locked out and, and it gets logged. And that's what I'm seeing. And I saw, a lot of them, uh, you know, every day trying to trying to do it. And they're trying to get into my server. And I actually set my threshold lower so that because I think a lot of them will try nine times because they know that they'll get locked out on number 10. Oh, good point. I set mine for like five or four. Right. Yeah. And I, I, get, I think I get a lot more that way. It's interesting because I too, um, not only do I have a server, but I have what, 20 sites. And like you, Randy, I think I've got a number of sites on that server. And yes, they are, you know, we are all under constant attack. It's just, that's just the nature of being connected to the internet. It's not limited to servers. Uh, True. What, what these bots, and it's all automated, of course, what these bots are doing is they're just running down IP addresses. And if something is at the other end of that IP address, they start banging away at it. They start banging away at it using um, uh, you know, remote console protocols. They start trying to do web-based access, maybe probing to see if it's a router that they can compromise. Um, they're doing just, all, and of course, they're trying to do uh, WordPress logins because that is the most popular CMS. Um, they're also, I think, trying to do uh, Windows file sharing probes to see if perhaps um, there's a, you know, some kind of an entry there with the latest uh, remote desktop protocol vulnerabilities being discussed. Uh, certainly there are people, you know, there are bots out there probing the remote desktop ports um, of every IP address that they can find. Um, I have not done the analysis to see if there's any um, uh, pattern uh, in terms of geolocation of the remote sites. It wouldn't surprise me if they were China and Russia, as, you, as you're experiencing, Randy, especially since we're both hosted at the same place. I don't think that it is a function of who you are or what your site is nominally about. Um, I think it's much, much more random than that. Um, I don't think they're going to try and, uh, quote unquote, influence the this is true subscriber base. I think what they're really trying to do is just find another server from which to send spam or another WordPress site from which to download malware, you know, force malware down the throats of our site visitors. Um, and yeah, I, I would not run a WordPress site without a security plugin right now that does exactly that kind of monitoring. It's interesting. I was on a, um, um, a webinar 
uh, at the end of last week, actually, that where someone uh, who's a WordPress expert was talking about some of the issues of what it takes to set up a WordPress site. And he actually said, you really only need these security plugins for quote unquote high traffic sites. Uh, uh. Yeah, I disagree completely. Um, not only do you need security at the WordPress level for every single WordPress site, uh, if you've got access to the server, you need to do some uh, some security lockdowns on the server as well because it's not just the WordPress sites that are being attacked. It's the server itself. Uh, and that's just not something you want to pay for. I mean, that's just, yeah, I look at um, my CSF logs. I can't remember what that stands for. You probably do. I'm trying to remember, but I don't know. <laughs> um, something, something, something firewall. <laughs> yes. Um, and I, I look in the, in the lockouts on my server and there is probably three or four pages of current lockouts of IP addresses that have tried to log in by SSH or right. other means. Um, that's secure shell for those that, that don't know. Um, and, you know, most of us, I'm sure, probably have SSH completely disabled or at least by, you know, ID and password disabled. Yet people try to, to log in through there. Um, I've got all of my sites that if you try to log into WordPress with the username admin, you're immediately yeah. locked out. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so my, my main point in bringing this up is not to say, oh, poor me. It's to tell these people that, you know, our listeners that have WordPress sites, you have got to get a security plugin. Well, like I said, it's, it's more than just WordPress sites, right? If you have anything True. connected to the internet. Um, Including your own your own uh, routers. Right, right. And, and that's what, one of the reasons I say that securing a router is one of the most important things you can do to protect the computers behind it. But um, if you've got anything connected to the internet, directly to the internet, um, it definitely needs some extra attention, be it a router, be it a server, be it a WordPress site, be it camera. a camera. Um, yeah. And w- again, what's interesting about things like cameras is that the majority of these internet of things type of devices, they're behind a router. Right. So it's the router where you really, and it's the router that most people will just sort of plug and play and, and plug and pray. You know, they'll just hope that it works because they, it's a router. They don't know from routers. It doesn't give them any added value. They want their camera to work. Uh, so, so that's where I, I suspect or, or encourage the, the home and small business user to be paying attention. But then the folks that actually have other presence and you know, some kind of presence on the internet, Yes, yes, yes. Go for that um, uh, that security plugin. I happen to use iThemes Security. Uh, it's not free, but it's very good. Randy, I think you're using something else. Yeah, no, you got actually that idea from me because um, okay. I po- pointed it out to you that I think it was really good. It is now owned by Lic- Liquid Web, who happens to be our host, the, yep. the web host that we have. Um, and I, it's very good, and you can do things like change the page where you log in. Right. So that when these sites are looking for that page, they just don't find it. Right. Yeah. I have a plugin that does that too. Uh, that, that regular pay, login page is not available. Yeah. There are other, I mean, it doesn't have to be iTheme security. There are a lot of other Absolutely. good ones. Um, there's um, a WordFence, I think, is another one that I think is quite popular. I follow their blog. Uh, their blog is really, really fascinating because they actually do a lot of good reporting on 
um, known vulnerabilities and what you need to do to address each one. And that goes across not just WordPress itself, but uh, popular plugins and so forth. So yeah, I think security has a similar blog. It's yep. only monthly, but um, they will give you a roundup of what plugins have been compromised because right. plugins can be compromised too. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's not just a, you know, a malicious compromise of the plugin. It could just be a, a simple, you know, bug in the plugin that actually exactly. some kind of a vulnerability that needs to be addressed. Uh, so yeah, it's um, like I said, I don't think people realize that uh, anything connected to the internet, directly to the internet is under constant attack. It just is. And um, there's actually nothing you can... Every minute or so. I mean, I want to really point out that this isn't something that happens every few weeks or something. It is every minute of the day there is somebody probing, trying to find if they can get in that IP address. Well, not somebody. It's a bot. Yes, absolutely. uh, A lot of people still think it is somebody. But the (laughs) bots are controlled by... Well, they may not be. That's what's also fascinating about this is that um, there are hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of unpatched machines that are still sitting on the internet. They have been infected by malware and that malware manifests by turning around and going out and trying to probe the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. There's nobody at that machine. Hell, the malware itself is probably you know a decade old by now and yet it's still out there very patiently trying to probe for other unpatched machines to which it can migrate. And using common passwords too. I mean, if oh, you yeah. don't have a lengthy, unique password, you are vulnerable. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I want to add to like uh, one thing you said, Randy, you were talking about like what people use this for, you know, getting uh, compromising your server and then sending spam out through it and all of that. I actually think it's a little more industrialized than that. Like I think the, if there's somebody that's setting up a botnet and those bots are going out and trying to compromise servers, I think the end game there is for them actually to gather a bunch of compromised servers and then sell them, you know, just like, or yeah. sell a bunch of Facebook accounts just or like sell, they sell a bunch of whatever credit card numbers. Yeah. Right. So they're not, so they're, so the person behind the bot that compromises your account or your router or whatever it is, is not even going to be the person that's going to then be exploiting that. But then what's looking, that final exploit? Well, well, the final exploits, all the stuff Randy was talking about. Maybe okay. it could be spam. Maybe you know, those could be turned into spam servers. Maybe those could be turned into you know ad serving things or whatever. You know, there's Bitcoin miners seems to Bitcoin be miners. Uh, yeah, so and it, phishing, of course, phishing and all yeah, all that stuff. So they just put it on the on a, a black market, and you know they they run these bots. They gather a thousand. Facebook accounts or a thousand compromised servers, whatever it is, they stick it up uh, for sale, uh, you know, anonymously, and they get, uh, you know, a hundred bucks for a thousand. Somebody Fishing actually um, reminds me one of the things to do sometime when you're bored um, is to go through your spam folder and take a look at some of the URLs that the uh, identified spam is sending you to, and yeah. very often. Uh, the real destination, not the, the printed destination, but the actual destination is like, it looks like a legitimate site, but it's like five levels down in an uploads folder of some random other site. There's a PHP file. And it's that, that's the compromise. The legitimate site itself is fine. It's that 
a hacker was able to upload some files onto that site and is now using them to do something else. Yep. And I've, I've seen them where it looks like, say, an official Apple email or something, PayPal email, and there'll be like seven links in the email, you know, in the footer, the header, the whatever, and six of them are legitimate. Right. And the seventh one is not. And so they're just cutting their, you know, okay, we're only going to get one seventh of the, uh, you know, amount, but we'll fool some people that look at the first couple of links and say, oh, wait, these really do go to PayPal or Amazon or my bank or whatever. And they then assume they're all good. And, you know, that's not the yeah, case. Yeah, but the quote unquote important one. Yeah. It's funny because yeah. one of the articles that I think just published, republished this week on Ask Leo was in fact, why is PayPal still sending out links in their legitimate emails? Oh. They're training people to click on links to PayPal. And what they should be doing is training people to go to paypal.com to get their messages. Yep. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, use a password vault. Really, really, yes. really. Yes, 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 yes. Wow. I think that's that a good place to wrap up. That is a good place to wrap up. The show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh78 rpm. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at The TEH Podcast. Tell a friend about TEH because, hey, that's how we find new listeners. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again here next week. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.